Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk, where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go, a podcast about the life cycles of people, places, and things. I'm Emily. And I'm Sarah. And today, Sarah, I'm going to tell you about Ireland's Russian collateral. What? So this popped up in my like Google cards. You know, you get the uh, little cards in your in your Google Chrome thing that tell you news stories about a deal that was made between the nascent Irish government in 1920 and the nascent Soviet government in 1920 in order to, uh, well, they have an agreement. So I'll get you up to speed on where both of those countries were in the 1920s because, and for some reason, this never got put together in my head, but they were very much going through, going through it. We'll go with that. (laughs) They were going through it. Going through it. So let's start with the Russian side. So we'll get start with the collateral and then we'll go with the loan and then what happened. So let's talk about the Romanov dynasty. Uh, Began with Ivan the Terrible in 1613, ended with Tsar Nicholas II in 1917. I guess you could say that technically his brother was the uh, the end of the dynasty because he handed over power to his brother. Yeah. Nicholas II did, but his brother was like, absolutely not, and handed it over the, to the provisional government. He was like, no, I'm not responsible for this. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Which was not the worst idea. No. In 1917, Nicholas II was deposed in February. His family, and he and his family, were imprisoned in the Alexander Palace until uh, April 1918 when they were sent to Siberia. And then they were moved to Yekaterinburg in, uh, ni- the later in 1918. And the whole family was sent. So there were how many daughters? Four daughters, one son, the Tsar and the Tsarina, and then their staff. And they were held captive during this time, not in the least because myriad factions during these revolutions, because there were multiple revolutions going on, had different opinions on what to do with them. Some wanted them restored to power. Some wanted them dead. Some hadn't formed an opinion yet. Uh, and like most civil wars, because this was essentially a civil war, it was messy. So eventually the Bolsheviks gain enough power that they can condemn. It's it's thought that Lenin actually was the one that uh, issued the instructions to assassinate the entire family, or execute, I guess, the entire family. Mm-hmm. They were executed in a basement in Yekaterinburg by a firing squad on the night of 16 July, 1918. Uh, there, the daughters and, and the son had sewn a lot of jewelry into their clothes to travel with their jewelry. So they kind of like smuggled it with them as they were imprisoned. And so actually so much of it was in their clothing that they, uh, the bullets, initial bullets, bounced off of their clothes. Oh. They were eventually killed. Nobody escaped. Anastasia did not escape. The, the, the Don Bluth movie is real charming, but it's not really accurate. <laughs> uh, and then the maid, one of the maids that was executed with the family, had a pillow with jewels. There were at least 18 pounds of jewelry, all told, recovered from the persons 
Holy canasta. Of the royal family. Uh, That night, there were attempted thefts of valuables, uh, but the army actually took all items of value from the, the bodies and the, you know, where they were held and stuff like that, and it became nationalized as, like, owned by the state, the USSR, uh, by the Bolsheviks. So all of the Romanov stuff became Russian stuff. Uh, A lot of gems were overlooked in the really, like, slapdash, ridiculous nighttime burial. I won't go through the details because it's disgusting, uh, but it was just... Everybody was kind of drunk when they did this. What? Because you're basically killing, like, somebody ordained by God. And so it was sort of a very serious thing to kill the Tsar and the Tsarina, even though it was something that they were told to do and they were, like, sort of eliminating that mindset within the country. It was still someone ordained by God to run the country, and you're killing them. So, anyway, it was really, like, everybody was kind of drunk and it was really sloppy. Have you ever heard about the like the murder of Rasputin? I've heard bits and pieces about it, yeah. Similarly messy and everyone was pretty drunk. Um. Mm. <laughs> Rasputin himself was a character, so that doesn't surprise me at all, but like yeah. the family, yeah. Yeah, there's it's like a it's it's very difficult to hear about the murder of a bunch of children. Yeah, it's absolutely. Also the, it's also the type of thing where what would have happened with them as being figureheads of Satan. So I don't, I don't know that it's justified or not justified. It was really messy and terrible for everybody involved, including the people that, you know, it, it was terrible for the people that did the terrible thing and terrible for the people who were subject to the terrible thing. So to uh, point out how messy the sort of who was in charge in Russia and then the sort of up-and-coming USSR in 1918, the White Army was in charge of enough of Russia that they formed the Sokolov Commission to investigate the mine shaft where all the royal bodies were dumped, and they found a huge amount of evidence and valuables that had just gotten left behind. So that stuff all got put in like a box and sent there's it got kind of scattered so i just sort of wanted to trace with this initial thing both how messy the government was because after the sokolov commission the guy that ran it was exiled because the bolsheviks came back into power like quickly Uh by like 1919 1920 so that's like rapid changes of who's in power and who's investigating what's going on with the death of leaders and things like that and So largely, the Romanov treasures uh, were nationalized. Now we'll talk about Ireland. So let's let's go a little bit west to Ireland. Over the course of, from 1912 to 1923, Ireland went through the War of Independence, the formation of the Irish Free State, the partition of Ireland, and the Irish Civil War. Right. So this was... A huge number of factions. Like I mentioned two factions, specifically the Bolsheviks and the White Army in Russia. Mm -hmm. It would be like saying the Irish and the English in the Irish War of Independence, Free State, Civil War, etc. That's not the whole story. And there were huge numbers of people within Ireland and within England that wanted different things for Irish government and for uh, Irish people. 
so it's it's frankly too complex to lay out in uh, a podcast where we need to get this done today. <laughs> <laughs> but let's just say it was an enormously tumultuous time in Ireland. And in fact, there were similar, albeit a few years later, um, messy handoffs that are going to take part or to play a part in the rest of this story. So Ireland's got a lot going on. There's the attempt of the formation of the Irish Free State and the partition of Ireland. All this is going on. And the government, the sort of, we'll call it a provisional government. That's not the actual accurate name for it. Uh, A lot of the names are Gaelic. And so I'm just going to mispronounce them poorly. But in 1920, both delegations from the Irish government and delegations from Russia found themselves in the United States. Both nations were trying to get recognition from the United States on actually being nations. Because if you think about it, um, the Russian leader has been, at that time, it wasn't entirely well known what the hell happened to him. (laughs) It's like, where is he? Fair. Uh, And then... Did he get murdered? Who knows? Like, there's still an enduring hope that one of the daughters lived. So, she didn't, to be clear. <laughs> in Ireland, it's very similar. It's like, well, is England in charge or not? Because up until around 1918, they kind of were. But are they? Now? No? Some of it? Some of the island? How much of the island? Do we have a map? No, we don't have a map? Okay. Come back when you have a map. Like, it's truly just sort of very messy. So there was an attempt, particularly from Ireland, uh, Eamon de Valera and Harry Boland held rallies and meetings for 18 months straight in the United States to build support uh, from Irish Americans, from constituents in the United States to try to get recognition from the U.S. government. They ultimately failed to gain official support, but they did raise the modern equivalent of $55 million dollars. Ooh, which is around three million dollars. I did the I did the math with a little calculator online. At the same time, Ludwig Karlovich Martins, who was basically a professional Soviet revolutionary. <laughs> oh, uh, back he, then you could be a professional revolutionary. Yeah, he had been attempting for uh, a fair amount of time, concurrently, and even a little bit before the Irish constituency was in the United States to get recognition for uh, the Bolsheviks for as the leaders of Russia. And Woodrow Wilson was like, pump your brakes. He didn't really say that. But uh, (laughs) he was like, calm down. You are not in charge enough for me to say yes. But in New York City, you can go ahead and create an informal Soviet embassy. So they weren't allowed to have a DC embassy but they were allowed to create an informal Soviet embassy in New York City. And so at some point during the 18 months of the Irish delegates running around the United States, they met in New York and they met with Ludwig Martins. And they traded $20,000 from the Irish for four pieces of what, what they were told was crown jewelry from the Romanovs as collateral for the loan. 
And so they could redeem, the Russians could redeem the jewelry when they paid back the loan. This is the Irish loaning the Bolsheviks money. Yes. Okay, all right. And this was done in secret for a few different reasons. Uh, one of the goals of this ostensibly was to get recognition for the Irish government in Russia. Because they were a pretty big country. They were a pretty big deal. It was you know, reasonable to want to get recognition for their power. But it was also pretty well understood that Russia was kind of like nobody's favorite person if Russia were a person at the moment. Imagine so, that. The Irish kind of kept it under their hat that they loaned any money. And then also they had raised all this money and then did they have permission from everybody? Did everybody vote on how to use it? No, it was just like, we're going to do this and then we'll get you know, asking forgiveness instead of permission type of thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Eamon de Valera, it was considered inappropriate for him to have the jewelry because this was so secretive and he was going to be in charge eventually. That was the hope as the, the Taoiseach of Ireland. Harry Boland and Sean Noonan, who were two politicians that had been traveling with him, took the jewels with them and uh, immediately when they returned to Ireland Boland handed the jewels over to the government and Michael Collins literally threw them back at him because Michael Collins was in charge at the moment he refused <laughs> to touch them he was like this is this is dirty like this is these are tainted with blood I don't want them so and I don't I mean it's kind of a charming series of decisions to make but Harry Boland decided to give the jewelry to his mother, who hid them behind a brick in her fireplace. Actually, she, <laughs> she hid them in the ashes of her fireplace in the summer, but then she needed to start using the fire, and she didn't want to like destroy the jewelry, so she hid them behind a brick. And then when Harry Boland's sister got married and moved, she took them to 315 Clontarf Road and hid them in her... Uh, brother Harry's boots. So, Harry Boland died in 1922. Uh, he died during the Irish Civil War, and he made his sister and his mother promise that they would not give the jewelry to anyone until Eamon de Valera was back in power. And they did. The sister kept the jewelry in her deceased brother's boots. Until 1938, when Eamon de Valera went, became, uh, came back into power. So, Sean O'Donovan <laughs> says he what? had the jewelry. At, yeah, exactly. Sean O'Donovan, I'm not entirely sure who Sean O'Donovan is, but he shows up in 1938 to say that he has the jewelry. And he formally handed it over to Eamon de Valera with witnesses. So, this wasn't quite as, like, back alley as some of the other things that had happened. So this is, we've gone from 1920 to 1938. So that's 18 years of like the jewelry just sitting around in a boot. In a boot. Somewhere in Ireland. Yeah. And there's like no receipt. And a lot of the people that knew about this deal are dead. <laughs> that's so strange. I love it. So in 1948, which was an election year, Oliver J. Flanagan asks the government, where the hell the Russian jewelry is and whether the Russians have ever repaid the loan. And so I said that this happened in 1948. Everything that has happened up to this point has been a secret. 
I don't even know what Ludwig Martins did with the $20,000. Yeah. Who knows? Like, it truly, uh, so much of this was so secretive that, can you imagine the explosion in the press at the time? I just, like, it's so, it's such a convoluted story, like. Yeah, I may do a little brief recap at the end to, like, help people. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, I wouldn't even know what to think if I read it in the paper. I'd be like, I don't know. Some old lady was hiding some some dude's shoes with Russian jewels in it. Well, and did they even, I don't even think they knew that part of the story at the time. Yeah. They just knew that there was a Russian loan. And this is in 1948, which is a weird time with regards to Russia, but not as nearly as sort of like antagonistic as the mm-hmm. 20s were because Russia helped the allies, although Ireland was neutral during the World War II. So you've got world wars going on as well as in like civil wars because Spain was having a civil war at the time as well. Like just a lot going on. And then this upstart is just like, hey, where's the Russian jewelry? <laughs> and everybody's like, what? Who's got, why do we have Russian jewelry? What Russian jewelry? What are you talking about? It's like, oh yeah, you know, in the boot. So Eamon de Valera had to, had to come clean and say, he kind of like played it off as a little like non-event, like a little joke or something. He's like, yeah, well, we haven't really been paid back yet. We still have the jewelry though. And so the Irish attempted to auction the jewelry and they had Christie's value it, but it was only worth about 1600 pounds. Which is oh, no. significantly less than what they had lent to the Russians. Right. And that's part of why I say that this happened, like, asking forgiveness instead of permission. Because that's what you do if you're loaning someone something, is you get collateral appraised. Exactly. So, uh, they were not ple- the Irish government was not pleased with this amount of money, but... Frankly, they didn't. They could either keep it, these four pieces of jewelry that had no provenance, no receipt, <laughs> or they could auction them, which they probably just wanted to get rid of them. But they contacted the Soviet government and informed them that they were going to attempt to auction the jewelry unless the loans were repaid. And the Soviet government repaid the loan and took the jewels on 13th of September, 1949. So where are they now? <laughs> In a boot somewhere? No. Who knows? Really? The short answer. So the Boland's daughter tried to locate the jewelry in 1988 and 1989. She wrote to the uh, as many diplomats as she could find who were Irish diplomats in Russia and attempted to visit the Soviet embassy in Dublin. She wanted to visit the Soviet Union herself, but she never got anywhere. She had never seen the jewelry. She had heard it described. Sorry, this is so like slapdash. I mostly just want to make sure I get the details right. Oh, you're fine. I'm enjoying this strange story. Right? And I've used like news articles from the 50s all the way up to now. That's not the right article. I've got like the Irish Catholic Times and the Irish diplomat and this and the that. Here's the description. Harry Boland's sister, Kathleen O'Donovan, described the jewels in an interview with the Irish press in 1948. This is a quote from an article. There were four articles in all, including a big cluster, which might have been part of a crown. The earrings and the pendant. Diamonds with topaz. They are all mounted on platinum with safety lock. 
And so these jewels are nice, presumably, but there's not a lot of indication where they came from or who owned them. So not only do we have no idea where they are, there's not a lot of information on whether or not they are actual Romanov crown jewels. Right. And so I started this with discussing where all the Romanov jewelry went. It basically got nationalized by the Bolshevik government and became Soviet property. And so did the jewelry come from that basement in Yekaterinburg? Maybe. Did it come from just some, like, jewelry shop somewhere? Because it was presumably fairly nice jewelry. 2000 or It was like $2,000, 1,600 pounds is not chicken feed. No, but it's but it not, is, like, $20,000 worth. No, it isn't. So, it becomes uh, quite a mystery that we've gone from a basement in Ekaterinburg... And the absolute upheaval of Ireland to probably a basement somewhere in the Soviet Union. <laughs> yeah, who, who can even know? Maybe Full a circle. private collector owns it. You never know. Some oligarch somewhere. Yeah, exactly. So that is the story of Ireland's Russian collateral. And I just, it is such a beautifully Irish story that the guy gave it to his ma. And his mom hid it in the ashes of the fireplace. But then it was going to, it was, she was going to need to use the fireplace. So she needed to move them. <laughs> and then her future son-in-law pulled a brick out of the stove so she could hide them. And then he and his, her daughter, his wife, took them and hid them in the boot of an Irish hero. <laughs> and then they got handed over in secret again. Back to Russia. This is so crazy. Like, they eventually made it back. And if it weren't for that little upstart, Oliver J. Flanagan, <laughs> we would know none of this. None exactly. of it. What a strange, circuitous story for these potentially uh, royal jewels of the Romanov Empire. Yeah, it is just sort of fascinating. Yeah. And there's another, I found another article about how there's some mystery involved with the cataloging of Romanov jewelry, but I didn't get into it uh, to write out notes for this particular podcast because I already had like five pages of notes. But I may cover that in a future one. Where where did the Romanov jewels go? Totally. We, sh- we completely should because I never I, it's something I've never thought about it like I never considered it like I have been obsessed when I was a little kid I was obsessed with the story of uh, potentially the princess Anastasia um, escaping and it was like a huge story for me when I was a little girl that there was like supposedly this Russian princess that had escaped being assassinated and lived in the US in New York but um it turns out that's probably not likely. No, but it is a really interesting story. It is an interesting story, and I think we should do it. I agree. Do you want to do that one? Yes. And I'll do the jewelry, and we'll yes. just have a, a, a Romanoff, a Romanoff uh, September. Yes, a Romanoff <laughs> September. I love that. <laughs> I love we, that too. And then we may be able to get some inter- someone to interview about Mothman. So that'll be perfect for Halloween. 
amazing. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah, the I feel bad I'm like being such a, a fart about the Anastasia story because it is really interesting. But her yeah. body was found. Mm-hmm. And actually, it was probably her sister Maria's body that was the one that was missing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I don't know why I find the whole. I think it's because it's so well documented. But the the sort of imprisonment of the Romanovs, I don't feel especially sympathetic toward the adults at all. Uh, you know, honestly, they were terrible people. But that doesn't mean that they deserve what they got, and their kids definitely didn't. And it also oh, doesn't mean. Yeah. I don't even know if anything different could have been done. I'm. Not full-blown agnostic, but I'm going to say it was a big old bummer. Yeah. So I'm sorry to be such a fart about Anastasia, because it is a really fun story. It's an interesting story, definitely. And it's like, when we'll get into this when I do that episode, but when we get into it, it was like, well, why would someone claim to be her, first of all? Yeah. So we'll get into that. Like thinking about thinking about it and what they did to the, her family members, mm-hmm. why would you ever want to claim that? Right. And then be like, mm, I'm going to paint this big old target on my back. Exactly. What would be the gain for it? I guess we'll see when we do that episode. Mm-hmm. We will. Well, that was really cool, Emily. Thank you. I Thank have you. never even thought about the Romanoff jewelry. 18 pounds? 18 pounds of jewelry. I'm just what? imagining these little kids with these jackets, like, super heavy, like, full of jewels. And they wore them every day. Right. Like, they were being shuffled into a basement. They were not dressed up to go anywhere nice. Wow. And I wanted to ask you, because I know you have weighed out jewelry. Yeah. What is the most jewelry you've ever had to weigh, and what did it look like as a volume? I would say I've weighed silver necklaces that are probably like maybe 12 ounces. That's about it. Yeah, and that's less than a pound. How many necklaces was it? Like three. Okay. So that kind of gives you an idea. Yeah, they were all like thick sterling silver with like uh, th- like actual pendants that were silver. Right. So like um, chunky jewelry is not the right word, but it gives you an idea of what they were smuggling away. And then you think about like even just exactly pieces if they just because they when the um, Sokolov, what is the convention commission went ahead and it inspected the area where the bodies were. They found a bunch of gems and pearls just like hopping around in the ground. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. So if you think about like big chunky pieces of jewelry and little individual jewels, 18 pounds. Hidden in clothes. Amazing. It is amazing. Like I think about a lot of the weight. I just I have to think about like the necklaces were probably pretty heavy and like set with gemstones and that's probably why they were so heavy and mm-hmm. then you got to think bracelets and like tiaras and tiaras can be pretty heavy when they're set with a lot of stuff and like, they were probably broken into pieces exactly because the gemstones are the more important part in a lot of ways mm-hmm. because they're more difficult to cut and a lot of them if they're bigger are more famous Versus the settings. A lot of that stuff ends up getting reset depending on who's in charge or who wants to do what with it. 
It makes me wonder if any of those gemstones are in circulation and they've just cut them up in their pieces of various, you know, like XYZ. I don't know. Who knows? Yeah, it's totally. I mean, I may be able to answer better <laughs> with my next with my next episode. That's exciting. Yeah. Rona, Romanoff September. I'm in. I'm here for it. Which is very fitting between the February revolution and the October revolution. Just revving up for <laughs> the October revolution. <laughs> <sighs> All right. Well, thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Oh, I probably should have talked about social media. Oh, well. Oh, and remember, you can check us out on Facebook at Where Does It Go? And it's Facebook slash Where Does It Go? And our website is wheredoesitpodcast.com. You can always email us and contact us through email uh, or through Anchor where this website, where this podcast is hosted. You can leave messages for us. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.